All right, we're going to continue our study of the topic, Don't Give Up. And we were looking last night at what is faith. So I know last night when we stopped, we were in Romans chapter 3, but I want to go to Hebrews 11 first to kind of get a running start to today's lesson. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And this kind of gives us the definition of what faith is. Hebrews 11, 1 says, now faith, and that word is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S in the Greek. Now faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, talking about faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. So they obtained a good testimony because of their faith. Because God said something and they said, Lord, I believe it. And did the thing that they hoped for happen necessarily when they expected it to happen? Well, just ask Abraham. When you try to help God, how, do, how well does that work out? You have Ishmael, right? Alright, so the point is, by, the, by it, talking about faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. They believed in the promises of God because what can we, like from last night, what did we learn about the promises of God? Do they ever fail? They never fail. So that's what the basis of faith is. God says something, we can take it to the bank. It might not happen in our time or how we expect it to happen, but it's going to happen. All right, now let's go back to Romans chapter 3. So when we left off last night, we were looking at Romans chapter 3, verse 28, which seems to be, on the surface, a contradiction to what we read in the book of James. So I want you to put a finger, a bookmark, something in Romans and flip back over to James chapter 2 because we're going to read these two verses back to back. James chapter 2 verse 21 actually verse 24 we're going to read James chapter 2 verse 24 and then we're going to flip back over to Romans chapter 3 and read these two verses back to back alright James chapter 2 verse 24 says you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only all right, now go to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. It says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. So on the surface, doesn't that seem like a contradiction? James says we're justified by works and not by faith alone. Roman, or Paul in Romans says that we are justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So on the surface, it appears that there's a contradiction. But when there ever appears to be a contradiction in the Scripture, you need to go and look at the context. Like I said last night, either you need to look at the underlying Greek or the underlying Hebrew, or you need to go back several chapters and look at what is the context. Alright, so when Paul says in Romans 3.28 that we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, let's look at what this type of faith is. So go back to Romans chapter 2. So flip back a page to Romans chapter 2. And let's start at verse 17. Romans 2.17 says, Indeed you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law 
and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So I want to stop there for a moment. If you were to ask these people, do you believe in God? What would they have said? Absolutely. Absolutely we believe in God. We have faith. But I want you to look at what Paul says about them. Verse 21 says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So what is Paul trying to say here? You say with your mouth that you have faith, that you believe God or believe in God, but what do your actions show? that you don't. Your actions show something completely different. And I want you to take away verse 23 right here because this really packs a punch. Verse 23 says, You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through what? Breaking the law. So if we break the law, the Torah, God's holy word, what are we doing? We are dishonoring God. We're going to look back at Deuteronomy in just a minute. And verse 24 says, For because you dishonor God through breaking Torah, breaking the law, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So what were the children of Israel supposed to do with God's Torah? They were supposed to go and teach the nations to provoke them to jealousy so they would keep God's commandments. But instead... What does God say they're doing? You're blaspheming my name because you're dishonoring me through breaking the law. Oh, it, it sounds to me like he's not saying you, you slip up in sin, you, you break the law, it, because we all do. But it sounds like he's saying you set apart part of it and you simply say I'm not going to do that. But I believe in the law. I believe in the law. It's like we hear people today. Yes, God's word is true. But I'm not going to keep one but bit I'm of it. I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that. And it's okay with God because I'm a Gentile. And, well, wait right. a minute. Yeah. And that, isn't that what you feel He's saying here? Is exactly. You say you believe in the law, but you've set apart part of it and said, "Well, I'm not going to do that." Right. You're teaching others to keep the law and you're telling others to keep the Word of God, but do you keep it yourself is basically what he's saying. Yeah, so it goes deeper than just yeah. slipping and, uh, and sinning because we, we all... Right. It kind of goes along with what Messiah said in Matthew 23 when he said to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he said... You bind, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they will not move them with one of their fingers. Talking specifically more about the man-made rules and regulations, but also Messiah did say whatever they teach from Moses' seat, do that, but don't do according to their works. What verse was that? That was Matthew 23, verse 3 and 4. Thank you. You're welcome. I don't have your memory. <laughs> well, I, if you, if I don't give you if I don't give you a scripture, just just say, hey, what's that scripture? All right, all right. So we're in Romans two twenty five. I got we got a lot of ground to cover. So just here we go. 
Alright, so just continuing the discussion of what what does Paul mean by in Romans 3.28 we conclude that a man is justified by faith. Well, let's keep reading in Romans 2.25. It says, For circumcision, talking about physical circumcision, is indeed profitable if you what? If you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law. I want you to underline that phrase. Righteous requirements of the law. If an uncircumcised man keeps the, uh, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the un- physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you even with your written code and circumcision are, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew or a worshiper of God who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. So is circumcision of the heart just a New Testament concept? Absolutely not. So I asked you to underline the phrase, the righteous requirements of the law. I want you to go back to Deuteronomy 12. Actually, Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. Start at verse 12. But Deuteronomy 10. So we're going to look at what does Paul mean by if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law. Because that phrase just really popped off the page at me when I was studying through this. And this goes right along with what we have been studying on Friday and Saturday. Because we've been spending a lot of time in Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy 10, in verse 12, the title of my Bible here says, The Essence of the Law. This is the essence of the law. It says, starting in verse 12, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but... To fear the Lord your God. What does it mean to fear the Lord? That means to respect Him, but it also means to obey. It means to obey. To walk in all His ways and to love Him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to what? Keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I command you today for your good. So notice what is all tied together here. Yes, the keeping of commandments, but what else has to be there? Love. The love of God. You have to love God in order for everything else to flow through. So he says, What does God require of you but to fear God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, and to keep His commandments? That's the essence of the law. If we keep reading... Well, here's some things that sound kind of familiar to what we read in Romans chapter 2. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, because God has chosen you to serve him, and what it, how do we show God that we love him? by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments, by fearing Him, by serving Him. All of that flows from the love of God. Verse 16 says, Therefore, what does it say today? Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. 
This is the essence of the law. This is the righteous requirement of the law. Can you keep God's commandments fully if you don't love Him? No. If you don't love Him and you try to keep His commandments, you'll read in the book of Romans it says you're trying to establish your own righteousness. And how does that work in the eyes of God? And the natural flesh fights against it. And the natural flesh fights against it. That's why we have to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in in order to help write those commandments on our heart. But what has to be the first thing we do? We have to make a conscious decision. We have to choose to love God and to walk in His ways. Isn't basically that a, def- a definition that we hold may not be true, but that's the definition I hold of a Pharisee is a person who obeys the law, but he doesn't love God with all of his heart. Right, and because and and going a, a step further from that from your definition of a Pharisee, they claim to keep all of God's commandments. Then what do they add on top of that? all of their man-made rules and all of their stuff. I have to do this stuff to be righteous in God's eyes. It's kind of like in Matthew 7 when these people say, Lord, did I not do all of these things in your name? And are they things God commanded? No. He said, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we can do all of these things that we think will please God. But what does God expect of us? He said, fear me, walk in my ways, love me, serve me, and keep my commandments. And his commandments are not And his commandments are not burdensome. What did what did Yeshua himself say? He said, Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is heavy and grievous and burdensome. No. My burden is light. Whose burden is grievous and heavy? Man, man's commandments, man's rules and regulations, because if we don't do them exactly the way they want them done, then People don't like us too much, do they? But this is the essence of the law right here. Exactly. My, my personal testimony, which I will not share, is that I spent years serving God the, to the best of my ability as a Pharisee because I did not have the Holy Spirit. And that's what salvation is about. It's, it's the empowerment to actually love God and to do His will uh, from a pure motivation and not from a church motivation. Um, I grew up basically in church, but the motivation was trying to do good in my own flesh. Right. And and I think most people can identify with that, is that we want to be good, but Paul says, you know, the power to do that is just not in me. You require the Holy Spirit to do that. Right. And the, of course, Pentecost is about that empowerment that mm-hmm. uh, Yeshua promised. So when you're looking at people that don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not born again. Right. Um, the best they can do is be a Pharisee. Right. Well, you know, and it's like what I talked about last night. If you try to take away parts of God's Word, you have to fill it in there with something. And most of the time, what's it filled in with? Man-made rules. Yourself. yourself, What you think is right. How does the book of Judges end? And every man did what was right in his own eyes. And how well does that work out? Never does. So go back to Romans chapter 2. So the essence of God's law is 
right there in plain sight in Deuteronomy. So what is this righteous requirement of the law? To love God, to fear Him, to serve Him, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments. And He said if you do these things, then those are the righteous requirements of the law because you're doing it because you love God. That's circumcision of the heart. That's keeping God's commandments out of faith and out of love. All right, so let's go from here back down to Romans chapter 3. So now that we have that background information, let's look at Romans chapter 3, verse 28, now with all that context. So verse 27 of Romans 3 says, Where is boasting then? Is it excluded? By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. So basically what Paul is saying, where does boasting... What If you were able to save yourself, you would have something to brag about. But not before God. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you try, if you think that you can save yourself, you have something to brag about. But is it possible to save ourselves? There's no, there's no way. There's no possible way for us to save ourselves. So salvation is by faith. But we looked at Deuteronomy to see what it is that God expects of us. If we say we have faith, what does God expect of us? Is it just that head knowledge? Is it just that confession with our mouth that, yes, God, I believe you? Was that enough for Abraham? Exactly. Was it enough for Abraham just to say, okay, Lord, I believe you? Lord said, okay, now I'm going to make you prove it. Take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, and offer him. And then what did the Lord say to him at that point when he did? He said, now I know. It's, better, it's more for Abraham. Now, Abraham, you know that you have faith. God, God already knew, but now Abraham knew. So verse 28, Romans 3, it says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified or made righteous by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So that means that we are justified by that faith that we read about in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 10. If we try to save ourselves, quote-unquote, with our own righteousness, Paul said, if anybody could have done that, it would have been me. And how did that work for Paul? It didn't work for Paul, so is it going to work for us? Absolutely not. Verse 29, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify or make righteous the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, so since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So in other words, how do the Jewish people get saved? By faith. How do the non-Jews get saved? By faith. So how many ways of salvation are there? There's one way of salvation. But is that faith an empty declaration of faith? Just empty words with no substance? No. That won't do it. If you say you have faith, you have to prove it. You prove it through your works, through your actions. And what works or actions is God expecting? What is His righteous requirement? That you fear Him, that you keep His commandments, that you serve Him, you love Him. Not man's commandments, 
His commandments. That's what He requires. That's faith. Because you're putting your trust in His words, not man's words. Because how often can men fail on their promises? (laughs) Quite often. Quite often, right. So verse 31 sums up the whole matter. Do Do we then make void the law or the Torah through faith? Does our faith make the law void? If we go back and read Deuteronomy 10, does our faith make the law void? The Lord Himself said, No, this is how you keep the law. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Keep the law because you love me. Because if you're doing it for the right reason, Paul says, certainly not. We don't make the law void through our faith. On the contrary, we establish the law. That's what makes the law have substance, have meaning. That's what makes God's commandments have meaning. If we keep them with no love, with no faith, then what are we doing? We're a clanging bell. Sounding symbol. symbol. We're just making a racket. What we're doing has no substance. On the flip side, if we say we have faith and don't keep God's commandments, how solid is our faith? How true is our faith? How do we prove our faith is real? By our actions. By our works. So this is exactly what Paul is saying or talking about when he says a man is justified by faith. What kind of faith are we talking about here? It's that faith of Abraham. That faith that says, Lord, I believe you. Now I'm going to keep your commandments. I'm going to keep your words. Go back to Genesis 26. Let's see how God himself graded Abraham. Genesis 26. So in Genesis 26, God is talking to Isaac. Who is Isaac? He's Abraham's son. He's the son of promise. And I want you to look at verses 4 and 5. So this is how God graded Abraham. Genesis 26, 4, it says, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. Isn't that the same promise that God gave Abraham? So he's given that same promise to Isaac. I will make your descendants, I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, talking about Messiah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because, here's why, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, my Torah. Doesn't that read almost exactly like Deuteronomy 10? This is the righteous requirement. Here's what God requires of you to do these things. So can we say without a doubt, did Abraham love God? He absolutely loved God. Did he have faith in God? Absolutely. Genesis 15, 6 says God accounted, his, God accounted it to him for righteousness. So how did Abraham prove his faith was real? Through his works through what he did, through his actions. Because God said, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, my Torah. So that is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 3 when he says, a man is, set, is declared righteous by his faith. Because what is that faith 
that God requires of us going to produce? Is it going to produce a dead tree? Or is it going to produce fruit? It's going to produce fruit. What kind of fruit is God looking for? The works and the commandments that He requires of us. The things that God requires of us. So was there a contradiction between James and Romans? There wasn't a contradiction. You just have to understand what faith is. Faith is what God requires of us in order to fulfill what Paul talked about, the righteous requirements of the law. Let's go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Matthew 25 has lots of different parables in it, but we're going to look at the parable of the talents. Not the whole parable, but we're going to look at three verses. Matthew 25, verses 20 through 23. Starting in verse 20, it says, So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. That word faithful is the Greek word, not pistos, but pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S. It's a variation of pistos. And that's Greek word 4103. Pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S. And that word faithful appears lots of times in the Scriptures, and we're going to see several instances of it as we go through. And I'll make sure to point out if it's the word pistos or if it's the word pistos. And... That word pistos is used mostly for the Hebrew equivalent of the word ne'aman. Ne'aman. N-E apostrophe M-E-M-A-N. Ne'aman. Ne'aman comes from what Hebrew word, you suppose? Amen or aman. So ne'aman. Ne'aman is a nephal verb which nephal means something like to be something. Okay? So when we look at that faithful servant, when he says, well good, well done, good and faithful servant, you could look at that word faithful as one who is being faithful. So well done, good and one and servant who is being faithful. So do you think it's a servant who is was, was faithful once upon a time or one who is faithful? That's, that's the point of the word ne'aman, which means trustworthy, believing, faithful, all of those different things. So well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. When you hear that word joy, what does that remind you of? Sukkot, tabernacles. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So what is, he, what is that promise that he's saying? Enter into the joy of your Lord. What, and it says enter into the kingdom because what is tabernacles a picture of? It's a picture of the messianic kingdom. He's saying enter into the kingdom. Enter into the joy of your Lord. 
Because another word for tabernacles or Sukkot is the season of our joy. Verse 22 says, He also, who had added two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So how were these men considered faithful? God gave them something to do. Did they bury the talent or did they do something with it? They were faithful over what God had given them to do. They spread the gospel. So they were faithful over what God had asked them to do. God said, I'm coming back. Do this while I'm gone. And what did they do? They did that while he was gone. What did he say to the one who said, well, I took the talent and buried it because I knew you were a cruel and harsh man. Was he like, mm, okay, that's good. I'll, I'll accept you into the kingdom. He said, no, throw him out, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I would say that would be considered not faithful. All right, let's go to Acts 11. Acts 11. Acts 11.24 gives us the definition of what a good man is. Because you hear a lot of people say, well, he was a good man. I'm a good man. That person's a good man. So let's look at what the Bible says, or the Scripture says, is the definition of a good man. Acts 11.24. This is talking about Barnabas. Verse 24 says, For he was a good man. What follows that? It says, Full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That word is pistis. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So if we look to the Scriptures for the definition of a good man, how does the Scripture define what a good man is? One who is full of the Holy Spirit, but also one who is full of what? Faith. One who is full of faith. So this is what the Bible says about Barnabas. He's a good man because he's full of the Holy Spirit and he's full of faith. So did he believe in God's promises? Absolutely he did. That's what makes him a good man. All right. So we just finished the section that's, that I titled in my notes, Our Faith is Proven by Our Works. We're going to start a new section now. So still looking at what faith is, the next section I, I would title, Faith Allows You to Finish the Race. Ooh, we might be getting into some sticky topics here, right? Faith allows you to finish the race. Yeah, but they need to be covered because a lot of people don't go beyond yeah I mean the scripture says what it says let's go to 1 Corinthians 16 1 Corinthians 16 we'll start here 1 Corinthians 16 alright so Susie your question was do you feel that the script from the scripture that works and of the deeds of the law are essentially referring to the same things. Well, you kind of nailed it right there when you said deeds of the law are obedience in order to try to earn salvation and the works are what come from faith. You're absolutely right. Yep, that's it. All right, 1 Corinthians 16. 
And see, that's where you've got to be careful. That's where you have to dig into the Scriptures and find, am I just misunderstanding the, the, these words? Or do I need to dig a little bit deeper? So, yeah, absolutely. Alright, 1 Corinthians 16.13. Very short verse, but very powerful. It starts off by saying, Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. So this is a, a call to action by the Apostle Paul. He says, stand fast in the faith. So that word faith is pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. But I want you to take note of that phrase. There's two phrases I want you to take note of. First of all, stand fast. That phrase, stand fast, is the Greek word stako. And I promise, I'm not making these words up. This is, this is what it is. Stako. Uh, you spell it S-T-E-K-O. That's what you put on a house. Yeah, you, that's what you pour um, A1 sauce on. It's a stako, right? All right, G4739. Greek word 4739. And the word stako literally means to persevere. Don't give up. So when you read Stand Fast in the Faith, Paul is saying persevere. Don't give up. Keep going. And we're going to find out why he keeps saying that over and over. So stako means to persevere, to keep going, to not give up. Alright, the, the next phrase I want you to look at is be brave. That word in Greek is andridzomi, A-N-D-R-I-Z-O-M-A-I, andridzomi. And I love this one. It's Greek word 407. <laughs> that word andridzomi literally means to be manly or to be a, to be a man. So he's saying, watch, persevere, be a man. Be manly. Be strong. So he's telling all the Corinthians, he's saying, don't give up even in the face of persecution. Be strong. Stand strong. Be a man. Or a woman of God. It would be very confusing in today's economy. Right. But, but the essence of what Paul is saying here is don't give up. That's what it means to persevere. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 7. Very short verse. And all of these verses have to do with finish the race. Your faith allows you to finish the race. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, For we walk by faith, that word is pistis, not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. So in other words, our walk is by faith in God's promises, not by what we see. Because what can happen if we get too focused on the waves instead of... We sink. We sink. Exactly. You know, and people always want to slam Peter. Oh, you know, Peter lost his faith. Well, you know what? He was the only one who got out of the boat. So there you go. But... At the same time, what Paul is saying here, he's saying we walk by faith, not by sight. We have to focus on the promises of God, 
not by everything else that's around us because can we get caught up in the cares of the world especially this day and age is pretty easy to especially this day and age but he's saying stand strong on the promises of God that's what faith is don't get caught up in everything else that's around around you in the world 2 Corinthians 15 13 sorry 2 Corinthians 13 I'm just a school teacher you know 2 Corinthians 13. We're going to spend some time looking at these verses. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6. It says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Boy, he didn't pull a punch there, did he? He said, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Yeshua the Messiah is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Oh, there's a lot to look at right here. So that word faith is pistis. Alright, take note of the word examine. The first word in verse 5. The word examine is the Greek word pirazo. P-E-I-R-A-Z-O. Pirazo. And that means to test. To test. So basically he's saying test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Does God ever test your faith? Paul is saying, test yourselves too. So he's saying, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. All right, that last word in verse 5 is one we're going to spend a lot of time looking at. In verse, at the end of verse 5, the word disqualified. That word disqualified is Greek word adodkimos. Adodkimos. A D O K. I-M-O-S, and that's Greek word 96, if you're writing down for the Strong's Concordance. Adodkimos, A-D-O-K-I-M-O-S, and that's Greek word 96. Okay, so this word disqualified appears in the Scripture about six other times, and most every time it's a different translation because this word has so many different flavors. So adodkimos can mean failing to pass the test. Counterfeit or reprobate. So we're going to look at five other scriptures where that word adodkimos is used. And every time you see it, it's going to be kind of a call to us as believers to not fall into that category of disqualified. Because Paul says, don't be disqualified. Don't fail to pass the test. Don't be reprobate. Don't be a counterfeit. Or as Messiah probably would have called him, hypocrite. Alright, so let's look at Romans 1.28. Romans 1.28. We're going to look at the five, five other instances of that word, adodkamos, which translated in 2 Corinthians 13.5 is disqualified. We're going to see how many different ways it's used. Romans 128. 
So it's talking about people who are so... I'm just going to use the southern expression. They are eat up with sin. They are just so sinful, so headlong into it. Verse 28 says, even at, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. If you're reading from the King James, it says a reprobate mind. To do those things which are not fitting. That word debased or reprobate is the Greek word adodkamos. So God gave them over to a debased mind. How did Paul translate it? Or how was it translated in 2 Corinthians 13.5? Disqualified. So those people that have that debased mind, if you keep reading it, says being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, and it's just a long line until you get to verse 32. It says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but approve of those who practice them. So what does that say about even if you don't do it, but you support it. Right. Which is what's just going on. You're just as guilty. So you're just as reprobate, is what Paul is saying. So God gave them over to a, de- a debased, a reprobate, a disqualified mind. Yeah, we're living in it's called tolerance today. Yeah. yeah. But, yes. you know. How hard is it for these people to come to the knowledge of God? It's almost like God is saying, you want it? Have it. You've rejected me long enough? Have it. Does God do that? It says right here, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. You want it? Have it. And Daniel? Yes, ma'am? Especially in this month that we're in, it's a pride month. It's hard to do because there are a lot of people that want us to accept them and accept their sin. Right. And uh, we can't do that. We can't be of the world and accept them, accept their sin. And because we don't want to be disqualified or reprobate. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. And Julie says the verse in Acts 12:24. What is a good man? Is a point I try to make when someone says that the Bible says there is none good, no, not one. I try to relate to them the difference. Sure, no one is good because we all sin and we are not good enough to save ourselves. But someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit, has faith, keeps the commandments, is a good man. Totally different meanings with the word good. Good verse to show people. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians 9.27. Still looking at that word adodkimos. First Corinthians nine twenty seven. Uh huh. First Corinthians nine twenty seven. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul is even saying, I have to discipline my body. I have to discipline myself and bring it into subjection. Because what if he lets himself? 
slip off into a lifestyle of sin, of unrepentant sin, then what does he become? He becomes disqualified. And that word disqualified is the Greek word adodkamos. Alright, let's go to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 8. 2 Timothy 3, verse 8. 2 Timothy 3, verse 8 says, Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses... Who are that? Who's that? Yeah, the two the magicians who said, "Oh yeah, I can turn my rod into a snake too," and they could do all of the miracles up to a certain point. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved or reprobate concerning the faith. So when it says disapproved. Concerning the faith, that's the Greek word adodkamas. So when that word is used, is it talking about good, godly, upright people? Or is it talking about people who are the complete opposite? The complete opposite. And that word disapproved is the word adodkamas. Alright, let's go to Titus chapter 1, verse 16. Alright, verse 16 says, They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Didn't we just read that in James and Romans? In their, in their, they profess, they say, yeah, I believe in God, but in works they deny Him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. That word disqualified is a dodkamas. So these people that profess to know God but their works deny Him, what does God say about them? Abominable, disobedient, disqualified. They're reprobate. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6 within itself is a stern warning. But let's look at verse, um, verse 8. Let's start at verse 7 to get the context. It says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is, being, is to be burned. Doesn't that read an awful lot like the branches that don't abide in Messiah? What is their end is to be burned. So is this talking about... I mean, it's, it's giving you the picture of watering things and pruning things, but is, what is this really talking about? This is a spiritual application. It says, but if, you're, if you bear thorns and briars, it is rejected. That word rejected is a dodkamas. And near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So, 
Anytime we see that word disqualified, reprobate, rejected, is it used in a way that sounds like somebody's going to be welcomed into the kingdom? Or does it sound like a stern warning? It's a stern warning. If you bear thorns and briars, that means if you're caught up in the sins of the world, and that's what the thorns and the briars represent. It says you're rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is being is to be burned. All right. Let's go to Colossians chapter one. Still looking at how faith allows you to finish the race. Now this this Colossians one, this is a good one. This is a good one. They're all good, but we're gonna have a language arts lesson here in just a minute. All right. Read verses one through twenty one through twenty three. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind and by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled. Notice it says you who were alienated and were enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. So what, when you come to the Lord and you repent, He says, you are to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. You're, you become alienated to the things you used to do, the way you used to be. But how does verse 23 begin? If. I want you to underline that word, if. All right. That word if, if you're looking at it in the Greek, it's what's known as a conditional conjunction. Conditional conjunction. If you, okay, if you know anything about a conjunction, a conjunction joins two, two ideas, two phrases, two clauses together. But what is a conditional conjunction? A conditional conjunction is when something affects something else. So if we look at what follows the if, we'll see what happens if we stay grounded in the faith. If we stay grounded, if we stay above reproach, we stay blameless, it says, if you'll be all these things, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So how do we continue to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight? What's the condition? We have to continue in the faith. Grounded and steadfast. Not being double-minded. Not, double not drawn to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Alright, that word grounded, where it says grounded and steadfast. That word grounded, even though we're not looking at the... This is not the uh, Hebrew word necessarily, because it's translated from the Greek into, into the Hebrew. 
the Hebrew word that would be translated for grounded is the word yasad. Y-A-S-A-D. I mean, I believe that the, all these books were written in the Hebrew. So if this was, if we were looking at a Hebrew manuscript, the word that's used here in the Greek is the Hebrew equivalent, or has a Hebrew equivalent, yasad. Y-A-S-A-D. Which is Hebrew word 3245. Yasad means to lay a foundation. So how many of you build a house with the expectation that it's going to fall? Nobody, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. What is the very first thing you do when you build a house? You put the foundation in. Is that foundation made of something that is going to eventually fall? No. What did Messiah tell us to do? He said, those who are founded on the rock. That's our foundation. Those who are founded on the rock, when the storms come, they're not going to be moved. So that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, be grounded. Lay your foundation on the rock and be steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Can, can I offer a... See, in, in the terminology of the day, the rock and the sand... You know, that's what they had for foundations. Uh-huh. You know, today we go out here and we just clear out trees somewhere and we pour concrete and stuff like that and make a foundation that way. But even in that case, when there's a whole lot of rain and storms and the ground becomes saturated, that concrete foundation can can move. Right. So we got to think in the context of the rock, the solid, you know, bedrock. Right. Not not a pile of rubble or anything like that, but but bedrock, solid, right. firm foundation that's Absolutely. not going to move unless God says. And if you've ever been to Israel, you'll, there's plenty of that. <laughs> there's plenty of rock. I tell you that. But you know, people yeah. uh, present day context, they don't they think of foundations like they see a construction going on there pouring concrete. You know, we, we need to focus that on the the rock. Right. You know. And. and on something that's immovable. People wonder why the Indians in America prior to, you know, Westerners coming here didn't have large communities along the ocean fronts. That's the reason. You, there's no foundations to be had on mm-hmm. the beach. Absolutely. No, it's just sand. Absolutely. And, you know, and another, just another interesting aside, that word yasad, that's where we get the word sowed. The deeper level, the mystery level of interpreting scriptures so you've heard you've heard us talk about the sowed level of interpretation the word sowed sod comes from that hebrew word yasad which means a foundation so they're related terms sowed comes from yasad or from, yasad comes from well they're both related terms okay. so they would come from the same root all right let's go to second timothy so we looked at, you're going to see lots of instances of this conditional conjunction that we just mentioned. You have all these things if. All right, let's go to 2 Timothy 2. Alright, 
Let's look at verses 10 through 13. Verse 10 of 2 Timothy 2 says, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Messiah Yeshua with eternal glory. So what is the goal that Paul is trying to lead people to? Salvation. That's the goal. Verse 11 says, This is a faithful saying. That word faithful is pistos. P-I-S-T-O-S. This is a faithful saying. That means, do we just believe it if we want to? Or can we take it to the bank? This is really true. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. Does that say if we give up, we will reign with Him? It says if we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He'll say to us, Welcome in, good and faithful servant. What's it say? If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. So even if we lose our faith, does that mean God's Word fails? No. We failed. Because God's words never change. And that's what Paul is trying to say. Even if we lose our faith, which that can happen, according to Paul, because he said if we deny Him, He will deny us. That word deny is Greek word arneomi, A-R-N-E-O, M-A-I, Arneomi, and it's Greek word 720. And another translation or another meaning for that word deny is to reject. If we reject Him, is He going to welcome us into the kingdom? Even though once upon a time we received Him. Reject is intentional. Reject is intentional. It ties right to Ezekiel 18. Go back to Ezekiel 18. This just popped into my brain. Ezekiel 18. About rejecting. Ezekiel 18.24 So, Paul says, if we reject him, he will reject us. How well does that fit in with modern theology? Oh, but Paul said it. It's all positive. Everybody's going to heaven. Yeah, Paul said it. Ezekiel 18.24 But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, is that because somebody made him? Or did he make a conscious decision? And does, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? What's the answer to that? No. All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Tie that to Matthew chapter 7. So go turn to Matthew 7. We mentioned it earlier, but we didn't turn there. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. So Ezekiel says, if, you turn, if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, 
What is iniquity? Is that a is that a uh oh I'm I'm messed up? Iniquity is a lifestyle of sin. That is lawlessness. That is continuance in sin. Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three. It says, "Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven." Where did we see that will in plain letters? It was in Deuteronomy ten. Here's the righteous requirements. Here's what I require of you. Verse 22 says, Many will say to me in that day, that's judgment day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? How many of those things did God command? Several. No. Not all of them. But he said that those things would happen. He didn't command it. Right. Uh, he said, yeah, you can go out and do these things. Right. But... But the point is, yeah. what what are these people trying to say? Lord, look what I did. I did. Right. So you should accept me. Right. Verse 23 says, And then I will declare to them, I knew you for a little while. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's why when we read in Ezekiel, or that's how God can say I never knew you because in Ezekiel it says if you turn from your righteousness all the righteous acts that you committed will not be remembered. And then verse 24 it says therefore who hears these sayings of mine and does them I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And that goes back right back to what we were talking about with that solid foundation. Alright, 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. Verse 7. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. This is Paul. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So he's here at the end of his life and he knows he's about to die. But what did he say about his faith? He's, he still got it. He said, I've never gotten rid of it. And that word faith is pistis. He said, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. What, all throughout Paul's writings, what does he tell people to do? Does he say, start the race and stop? He says, finish the race. So he's living out what he's telling people to do. He said, I have finished the race. And he tells them also not to step out of bounds. Yeah. Or else you might become what? Keep the faith. Disqualified, right. Yep, don't step out of bounds. Alright, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verses 38 and 39. And you cause it the good fight. Mm -hmm. Good fight. The hard and burdensome fight. fight you win. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and if you don't have God's Word, how can you fight? Alright. I said we're going to read verses 38. Okay, we're actually going to read verses 35 through 39 to kind of get the context. Alright, verse 35, Hebrews 10, says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. 
Did Paul say you have need and endurance so that after you have made an empty declaration of faith, you may receive the promise? He said, after you have done the will of God. Everyone gets a promise. So that ties right back to what we have read in Deuteronomy 10 about the righteous requirement of God. It says, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And then in verses 37 and 38, he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to go to Habakkuk in just a minute because they read a little bit differently, but you'll see that the meanings are... The, the application that Paul is making here mirrors what Habakkuk says. All right, verse 37 says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will, not, will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. That word is pistis. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. What's that mean to draw back? Does that mean that you just... When someone draws back, they get what? They're scared. I, I that's putting your hand to the plow and turning back. That, that's putting your hand to the plow and looking back. Verse 39 says, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. Perdition is destruction. That's the lake of fire. But of those who believe to the saving of the soul. How many times have we read that? Those who continue to the end receive the salvation of their souls. That's at least twice that we've read that. And we're going to make it a good three here in just a little bit. But of those who believe, that word, that phrase, who believe, literally says of faith. For those who are of faith, that word is pistis, to the saving of the soul. Alright, so keep a finger here, and I want you to flip back to Habakkuk chapter 2. So, to find Habakkuk, go to Matthew, flip back about 20 pages. If you went to Hosea, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So after Nahum is Habakkuk. After Habakkuk is Zephaniah. Well, I was going the other way. Yep. So Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, then Habakkuk. You said go to Matthew and go back. <laughs> I did, and that's how you find it. Habakkuk chapter 2. All right, we're going to read Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. And then we're going to compare it directly to how it was translated or written in Hebrews chapter 10. All right, Habakkuk 2, 3 and 4. It says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So that means when the promise comes, will it delay? No, it's going to happen. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. heading on here says God says the disobedient will be punished. Yeah. Yep. That word faith in Habakkuk is the word imunah. So pistis and imunah 
are related terms. Pistis is the Greek term. Emunah is the Hebrew term. So, but the just shall live by his faith. And how many different translations of Emunah did we see last night? Steady, unchanging, all those different translations of, of Emunah. So let's compare that to what we just read in Hebrews chapter 10. So it says, He who is coming will not tarry. Verse 38 says, But now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In Habakkuk 2.4, it doesn't say that exactly. But let's look at the parallel. Who is the one who draws back in Habakkuk 2.4? It says, Behold the proud. So the one who draws back is the proud. In Hebrews 10.38, it says, My soul has no pleasure in him. In Habakkuk 2.4, it says, His soul is not upright in him. So one whose soul is not upright in him, what kind of pleasure does God have in that kind of person? He doesn't. He has no pleasure in that man. And it's the one that will draw back. The one who will give up when the going gets tough. But how do the just, the upright, how do they live? And that's not talking about just here on this earth, but it's talking about into eternity future. How does the just or the upright live? By faith. By the promises of God. No compromise. No compromise. Let's go to 1 Peter 1. So we read in um, Hebrews 10.39, those who are of faith, those who are of faith will continue to the saving of their soul. So that's at least twice that we've read you have to finish the race to receive the goal of salvation. Let's see what Peter says. 1 Peter 1. We're going to read verses 6 through 9. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to pra- excuse me may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah whom having you whom having not seen you love that's the very definition of faith though now you do not see him yet believing you rejoice with inexpress with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Verse 9 is the kicker. Receiving the, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What do you think that word end is in Greek? Telos. The goal of your faith. So the goal of your faith, if you keep the faith, even when the going gets tough, what do you receive at the end? The reward. The reward, which is what? The salvation of your souls. So the salvation of your soul is the goal. That's what your faith leads you toward. Does the going get tough? Absolutely. But does that make you lose your faith? If your faith is grounded like we have been reading about, founded on the rock, if you continue to the end, 
it says you receive the salvation of your souls. So three different times we have read that salvation is the goal. Is the goal. That's why Satan comes so hard and heavy in the church saying that once saved, always saved. You betcha. He erases everything else. Because if you preach that doctrine of once saved, always saved, what does that make you do? You, You put your guard down. You slap, you put your guard down. Yep, you put your guard down. But what does Paul tell people to do? Keep your guard up. Don't give up. Keep going. Don't lose the faith. Finish the race. Revelation 2.10. Surely it's different in Revelation. We've looked all over the Scripture. Surely there's one place in here that, that we can find that says, you don't have to keep faith. You'll get saved anyway. But what is the very na- what is the very nature of God? What did He tell Moses? He said, "Ayeh yeah. He said, "I will be who I will be. If you love me, then you are my son. You're my child." What if you disobey God? What if you deny Him like we read in 1 Timothy? He'll deny you. So God is to you how you are to Him. Revelation 2.10. This is to the church of Smyrna. It says, Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. So what was the, what was the command to the church of, um, of Smyrna? Keep on keeping on. Don't give up even when things get tough, even when tribulations come. Keep going. Unto death. Unto death. Unto and, death. and the number 10 could be righteous judgment. Right. Right. All right, so faith allows you to finish the race. All right, let's look at another aspect of what is faith. Faith upholds the law. Faith upholds the law. So we read in Romans 3.31 how your faith does not make the law void, but what does it do? It establishes the law. Let's look at Matthew 23. Matthew 23. We looked at Matthew 23 just a moment ago where Messiah says, don't, whatever they preach in Moses' seat or they teach, do those things. But whatever they, whatever their works are, don't do because those are the man-made rules and regulations. But let's look at Matthew 23, 23. Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And I want you to look at what the weightier matters of the law are. Justice, mercy, and what? Faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Did God? Did Messiah say, don't pay 
tithe of men and an incumbent, did he tell them not to do that? He said you should have done all of them instead of picking and choosing what you wanted to do. So that's when he says you strain a gnat to swallow a camel. But when he said, and that word faith is pistis, he said faith is one of the weightier matters of Torah. And we read in Deuteronomy 10 how faith is the essence of Torah. It's the essence of the law. If we have no faith and we try to do the works of the commandments, what does that do for us? It does absolutely nothing. What did God say? He said, love me, serve me, keep my commandments. Do all of these things not because you want to establish your own righteousness, but because you love me. Does that tie to a New Testament scripture? Maybe John 14, 15? If you love me, keep my commandments. And then 1 John 5 says, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are a heavy, grievous, burdensome. No, no, He said, my commandments are not burdensome. So faith upholds the law because that's the essence of the law. How can we keep the law without the faith in God? 1 Corinthians 13. You might recognize 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter. First Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 13.2 It says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. What did God require of the people in Deuteronomy 10? I know I keep pointing us back to Deuteronomy 10, but that's the essence of Torah. To love Him. So what would it mean to have faith in God, but have no love? He never tells them to Doesn't really obey make the it. definition of faith. Right. He never gives any commandment without first telling them to love. Right. This is the number one principle. If you're going to obey God, you can't. What was the charge that Messiah brought against the church of um, Ephesus? He said, you're doing all of these things. You reject the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You're doing all of these things, he said, but... You've lost your first love. He's saying, and did he say, that's okay, that's okay, you're doing all these other things, that's all right. What did he tell them to do? He said, remember where you have fallen and what? Repent. And do the first works or else I'll come and remove your lampstand. So, with that being said, how does faith uphold the law? How, what does this have to do? What does 1 Corinthians 13 have to do with keeping God's commandments? If we don't love God, how well can we keep His commandments? We can't. And then verse 13, it says, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. When the scribes and the Pharisees asked Messiah, what is the greatest commandment in the law, what did He say? He said, He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He said, And on these hang all the law. That means 
the law is summed up with those two commandments. Did either of those commandments come from the Big Ten? You can't keep the Big Ten if you don't have love. So what has to begin? What has to be the beginning point, the genesis of it all? It has to be love. That's where your faith springs out. All right. So faith upholds the law. So we've looked at all of these different aspects of faith. Now I want to get into one that's a little bit more not so happy. What does it mean to be an unbeliever? What does it mean to be an unbeliever? So this is all still part of what is faith. All right, let's go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I want to read verses 42 through 48. Verse 42 says, And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward? That word faithful is pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S. Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant, and notice who's being called a servant. It's one that is currently serving the master. But if that servant, the one that's serving the master, says in his heart, My master delays his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the what? Unbelievers. Even though he was called a servant. He was one doing the work of the master. But what did that servant do? There, he came to a certain point where he said, Oh, my master delays his coming. So he started doing his own thing under the false pretense that, hey, I'm a servant, I'm okay. And what happened when the master came back? Did he say, good job? No. He said, it appointed, he had caught him at an hour when he was not aware and would cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. All right, that word unbelievers is the Greek word apostos. The A at the beginning means the opposite. Pistos means faithful. Apostos, unfaithful. The opposite of faithful. So even though this servant was considered a servant, he started acting like he was a master. He started acting contrary to the way the master expected him to act. And when the master came back, did he call him a believer, one full of faith? He started acting as if, oh, my master changed his mind. My master changed his expectations. And what happened? He was considered one without faith. Apostos. Is that where apostate comes from? Mm -mm. 
It's not where the word apostate comes from, no. But, huh? Could you go over the unbelievers again? So the word unbeliever is the word apostos. A-P-I-S-T-O-S. It's pistos with an A in front of it. That A makes it mean the opposite. So anytime you see A something in front of something, it, it can mean the opposite of it in the Greek. So it means without. Daniel. Yes, sir. It may be helpful. There are a number of English words like moral and amoral, yep. which use exactly that. Mm-hmm. There's a whole series of them. Once you get used to that idea, just a negative of right. whatever. Right. There are a lot of them in English. Right. It's just something we use in everyday English and we don't really pay that much attention to. But, you know, this, this shows that to be considered an unbeliever, what is an unbeliever? It's one who has no faith. So it goes back to, did this servant, and thank you for that, Edmund. And so this servant knew the will of the master, but then what did he choose to do? His own he, he chose to go his own road. Oh, surely my master will change his mind. So one, who, one without faith, he had the knowledge of his master's will, but chose to do differently. Look at verse 48, or verse 47. And that servant who knew, who knew, had knowledge of his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with what? Many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. So, does ignorance left you off the hook? No, you're still beaten. For everyone who... To whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to him and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Alright, let's go to John chapter twenty. John chapter twenty. We're going to read verse 27 right now. We're going to come back later and read 29. But I want to read verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. That word unbelieving is apistos. A-P-I-S-T-O-S. And the word believing is pistos. So he's saying... Don't be without faith. Have faith. So what does the word apostolic mean? Well, that would be a completely... Un- a day, okay, that's not, a, that's not an A word. Yeah. I'll have to look into that one, but... Never really thought about that one, but you've given me some homework. All right. Romans 4. Yeah. Romans 4. Romans 4.20 Looking at what does it mean to be an unbeliever. The short answer, it's one who doesn't have faith, but don't just take my word for it. Let's look at the scripture. 
Romans 4.20, it says, he did, talking about Abraham, it says, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. That word is um, actually not apistos, but apistia, A-P-I-S-T-I-A, which is related. And it's Greek word 570, and it just means faithlessness. So you'll see that all these terms are just related to the same word of pistis or faith. Apistia, which is Greek word 570. So basically it says, He did not waver at the promise of God through faithlessness, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being and being fully convinced that what He had promised, He was able to perform. That's the very definition of faith. When God said, I will do this, what did Abraham say? All right. You're going to do it. And it says, being fully convinced that he had promised what he had promised, he was able to perform. That means he was able to do what he said he was going to do. And therefore, as a result, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So, when God said, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars, and Abraham said, okay. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Romans 11.20 Ooh, Romans 11 talks about being grafted into the olive tree, the already existing olive tree. It's the, it's the portion of Scripture that tells us there are not two separate trees. But there's one tree and it's not called the church. Alright. I'm going to read verses 19 through 23. Well, when you read the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, does it mention the church or does it mention Israel? Israel. All right, verse 19, it says, You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. The word is pistis. Do not be haughty, but fear. What's haughty mean? Proud, Proud arrogant. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, Consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness. What's the next word? There's a conditional conjunction. This is another instance of a conditional conjunction. What's conditional mean? It means you have to do something. It's two parts. Yep, it's two parts. So, what is the if? If you want the goodness of God, what do you have to do? Here's where the if comes in. But towards you, goodness, if you what? Continue in His goodness. Otherwise, here's the result, you will also be cut off. So how do we receive the goodness of God? This goes right back to a yeah, a sure, a yeah. How do we continue? How do we receive that goodness of God? 
It's how we are to Him. We have to continue in His goodness. Otherwise, it says you will also be cut off. And if they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, that word unbelief is apistia, that will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So we notice the flip side. If you don't continue in God's goodness, you're cut off. But it says, if they don't continue in unbelief, what will happen to them? Did God say, too bad, so sad? Or did He say, you're grafted back in? If they don't continue in unbelief. What happens if you continue in unbelief? You're a dead branch. You're a dead branch. And what happens to a dead branch? Cast into the fire. Cast into the fire. Alright, let's go to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 kind of give us a little bit more clarity, as if we didn't have enough. Gives us a little bit more clarity on what does it mean by an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3, it says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are what? Perishing. Verse 4 says, Whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Messiah, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So back in verse 4 where it says, Those who do not believe, that's the Greek word, Apostos, A-P-I-S-T-O-S. Apostos, those without faith. So those whose minds are blinded, those who are perishing, are those who don't believe, those who are faithless, those who refuse to receive the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 6. Oh, 2 Corinthians 6. This is another one of those potato chip chapters. You can't just read one verse. You've got to read a bunch of them, right? Alright, 2 Corinthians 6. The key verse is 15, but we're going to read verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, because that gives us the full context. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What's the answer to that? None. Righteousness and lawlessness. And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ or Messiah with Belial? That's the devil. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? A believer, that word is pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S. Unbeliever, Apostos. So what accord has a one with faith with one without faith? What's the answer to that? None. Diametrically opposed. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore... 
Here's the application. Come out from among them, talking about the unbelievers, talking about those without faith, those that are on the opposite side of the spectrum. And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. Touch, that doesn't carry the same connotation. That's, that's not what this is talking about. The word in Hebrew would be nagar, naga, as we might anglicize it. And it means to clean. It means not to let go. How many of you have witnessed to people about God's commandments, especially the pig, and they're like, I'm not letting go of my bacon. I'm not letting go of my Sunday. I'm not letting go of these things. What are they doing? They're doing what God said don't do. Don't cling to those things. Because when you cling to them, you're putting more emphasis on that than the ways of God. He's saying don't cling to what is unclean. Because what does it mean when you're unclean? It means that you are separate from God. And... You know, I've heard it said many times, would, do you ask God to dwell in uncleanness? If He is dwelling in you, do you ask dwell, um, God to dwell in the outhouse? Absolutely not. So do not cling to what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from some filthiness of the flesh and spirit, all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfect in holiness in the fear of God. What does Hebrews 12.14 say about holiness? Without holiness, no one will see God. Without holiness, no one will see God. So perfect in holiness in the fear of God. Alright, 2 Thessalonians 3. Second Thessalonians three. All right. Let's read verses one and two. Second Thessalonians three, verses one and two. It says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just it is it just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So those that don't have faith, Paul calls unreasonable and wicked. Alright, that word unreasonable is the Greek word atopos, A-T-O-P-O-S, atopos, and that's Greek word 824, and that is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word aven, A-V-E-N, which is iniquity or lawlessness. So, if we look at that word unreasonable, you could translate it as lawless men. So that we may be delivered from lawless men. So if we look at it that way, those who don't have faith are lawless are we talking about people who run stop signs or are we talking about people who break God's law? I mean, don't run a stop sign, obviously, but I'm saying, what, what law are we talking about here? We're talking about God's holy law. And then that word wicked, the word wicked just means 
bad. Wicked. All right. First Timothy one. That was a letdown, wasn't it? You thought I was going to give you some great word, didn't you? It just means bad. First uh, Timothy one. going to read verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, 1 Timothy 1 says, And I thank Messiah Yeshua, our Lord, who has enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in what? unbelief. That word unbelief is apistia, A-P-I-S-T-I-A apistia and then verse 12 where it says he counted me faithful that word faithful is um, pistos P-I-S-T-O-S so if we look at one who's in unbelief one who is faithless in faithlessness what did Paul call himself? He said, I was formerly a what? A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. What's it mean to be insolent? Insolent. That means to be prideful, boastful, arrogant. So, you know, he's saying, I was all of these things, but I did them and I obtained mercy from God and I'm able to preach the gospel now because I did those things, excuse me, in unbelief. Yes. Uh, yeah, and it also means betraying a trust. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's from Thayer's Greek lexicon, but and it refers to Romans three three. But yeah, I think that's very important to look at it in that light of betraying a trust, called because when God offers this prompt, whatever promise it is, if then. You know, right. uh, that if we don't believe it, you know, because he's, I don't know, it's kind of hard to get words out because my mind's overrunning my mouth. Uh, if we don't accept his words, then, you know, we're saying that you're not worthy. Right. Right. In a manner of speaking. Right. And you know, something else I think of when I hear that insolent insolent man betraying a trust, how many times do you think Paul deceived people's trust under false pretenses to kind of get a foothold in and then put the knife in the back? He's saying that's the kind of guy I used to be. He's saying, but thank God through his mercy, through his grace, he put me into the ministry and now I'm preaching the gospel. All right, 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. Oh, here's another good verse. It tells us we can eat anything we want as long as we as long as we uh, just thank God for it. All right, 1 Timothy 4. We'll read verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, 
That word faith is pistis. So it says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanks with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. All right? So those who believe and know the truth. So those who believe and know the truth are those who have faith and know Torah. Because what does the Bible say is truth? I know John 14, 6, Messiah Himself says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But what is Messiah the embodiment of? Torah. Where do we find in Psalm 119, verse 142, that Torah is truth? Psalm 119, verse 142. So it says those who believe, those who have faith, and know the truth will receive from God those things which are to be received with thanksgiving. So in God's Torah, in God's Word, where does God say, eat this, not this? Leviticus 11, right? So we know the truth. Because God told us the definition of what is food and what is not food. So if we believe, if we have faith and know the truth, then we will know what God's Word says. We're not going to be led astray by every wind of doctrine. Verse 4 says, For because you know the truth, because you believe and you have faith in God's truth, for every creature of God is good. Notice it doesn't say every creature of God is food. Food. It says good. But it doesn't say food, does it? For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be received if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So where in the Bible are animals set aside, sanctified as, you can eat this, not this? Leviticus 11. So in Leviticus 11, it tells us to... Eat this. You can eat this. Don't eat this. Does it say you can eat it for a little? You don't. These are just going to be unclean for a little while. Then they'll be considered food. No, it says they'll never be food. Verse five. That word sanctified caught my eye. That word sanctified is the Greek word hagiadso. You've heard of hagios, right? Hagios is the saints. Hagiadso. H a g i a z o. Hagiadso means declared holy. So if we take out sanctified and put in declared holy, for it is declared holy by the word of God in prayer. Where also does God say, Be ye holy, for I am holy? Uh, Leviticus 11. Let's go to Leviticus. We've said it three times. Let's go look at it. Leviticus 11. I won't keep you in suspense. Let's look at it. Leviticus 11, verses 44 through 47. Verse 
Verse 44 says, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourself or make your soul unclean with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. He's saying, be holy for I am holy. Here's how you do it. He's saying, be holy for I am holy. Don't make your soul unclean with something I'm calling an abomination. It's almost like uh, some religious group altered at verse 5 in the other one to stick that in because if you read the whole paragraph, that one sentence doesn't really seem to fit. No. But if you read it all within context, if you believe, if you have faith, then you know the truth, then you're going to know where did God say eat this, don't eat this. Because in Leviticus 11, it ties right to what you said in verse 5. For it is sanctified, it is declared holy by the Lord, by the Word of God, and by prayer. So, can we pray over an unclean thing and make it clean? We cannot. We cannot. We cannot. So, we're going to stop here for today. And we'll pick up next time, Lord willing, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 21, continuing to talk about what does it mean to be an unbeliever.